Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. All right, well, good morning, Amago Day. Uh, we are going to be in Mark 10 today, so if you have your Bible, please pull it out and open it up there. We are in a series called The Year of Following Jesus, where we are looking at the life of Christ and trying to explore what does it mean for us today in our culture, in our context, in this time and place to follow him in his footsteps and to follow after him. One of the ways that we're doing this is by entering the historical church calendar, uh, which is modeled historically on the life of Christ. So we recently came out of Christmas, where Advent and Christmas were looking forward to and then celebrating the birth of Jesus. And now we've moved into the season of Epiphany, where we are uh, looking at the life and ministry of Christ. And I love that the life and ministry of Jesus is called Epiphany. The season is a season of epiphany. Because if you think about an epiphany, it's like that, that moment of illumination, that kind of aha moment where you're looking and suddenly it makes sense and you realize. And with Jesus, I think it's like this. I, I kind of think of it as like one of those uh, like 3D pictures where you're looking at the picture and at first it's kind of ambiguous and you're staring and it doesn't quite make sense. But if you look long enough, suddenly the shape starts to come out and appear and boom, the whole picture kind of lights up and makes sense, Right. And you can never sort of look at it again and not see the real image. Similarly with Christ, I believe as we watch Jesus, as we gaze upon who he is in his life and his ministry, uh, at first at times it can feel a little disorienting. Like, uh, how does this fit in with who we thought God was and what we thought life was about? But as we stare long enough, suddenly the picture starts to, you know, kind of galvanize and catalyze around him and then pop, it pops And we end up seeing not only Jesus, but he begins to make sense for us of who God is, what life and what our world is really meant to be about. So as we're looking at Christ, we want to look and gaze long enough to let that epiphany sink in. And this morning, we want to look at how that happens with Jesus as he approaches the topic of power. How does Christ approach the topic of power? we think about power today, it can often feel like we're sort of living in this dog-eat-dog world where at business or in school or whatever, it's sort of everyone's trying to make it to the top of the heap and compete and stay alive. And in the midst of that, as, as Jesus steps in, we see a different orientation around power. We see that power itself is not bad. Like God has power. God created power for us to use. But the question is, what is power for? How does God use it? How does Christ use it? So we're going to look at Mark 10, and we're going to start in verse 35. And now the context here is that Jesus has just told his disciples he is going to the cross. He said, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, and on the third day I'll be raised again. And coming immediately out of telling his disciples this, this happens. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I love that. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Uh, This sort of reminds me of like my seven-year-old daughter comes up to me and she's like, "Uh, Poppy, I have a question. I want you to say yes no matter what the question is, right? (laughs) And usually my suspicion radar goes up. I'm like, okay, I know you're probably asking something. So rather than just saying yes, uh, Jesus responds similarly to how I would respond to my daughter. He says, "Uh, what is it you want me to do for you? 
What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They said this. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. They're saying when you come into your kingdom, when your kingdom comes, we want the best seats in the house. We want to be right at the center of attention. And the best seats in the house, not necessarily like at a concert where you're a spectator and you want to be right up front. They want the best seats in the house like on stage where everyone is looking at them. What they are asking for is power, for control, to be seen, to be known, to be heard, to be respected, to be able to, uh, you know, have influence and authority over the lives of others. And it's kind of funny, there's sort of the inappropriate timing that they're coming to ask this question, right? Because if you think about it, Jesus has just said, I'm about to die, right? And they're, they're coming right out of the gate with this. It would sort of be like sitting with your friend at the hospital at his bedside, and he goes, the doctors have told me tomorrow's my last day. And you're like, oh, well, can I have your house and car? Right? Right? Like, like inappropriate timing, but it's kind of the sense here. Jesus is like, I'm going to suffer for the sake of the world. And they come right out and go, well, hey, can we have the goods? Can we have the stuff. They want power, fame. And these are two of Jesus's best friends. They're three of what's called the inner circle of the disciples, James, John, and Peter, the ones who were closest with him. Fortunately, uh, we've moved beyond this day, right? Like we don't strive for power today. (laughs) Just kidding. Yes, we do. Uh, This is, you know, there are a lot of different forms of power, But as I was thinking this week, you know, one of the forms of power that has become very prevalent in our culture is that of fame. I was reading uh, some studies recently on, they were uh, basically over the last decade, they have been doing studies of children, like in elementary school and youth, trying to find out what is it they want to be when they grow up? What is it that they most value? And whereas back in the day, it might be like, oh, I want to fall in love or I want to impact the world or whatever. They found that the, since 2007, uh, the number one year after year, the number one thing that children want to be today is famous. And it's interesting because they say back in the day before 2007, and 2007 is kind of when the digital, you know, social media boom and all, all that kind of stuff took place. Uh, they say back before 2007, fame was down towards the bottom of the list. Uh, but now it's sort of climbed up and it's been consistently year after year number one. And they kind of go, why is that? Well, researchers, you know, they hypothesize, they think that like one factor is the prevalence of like reality TV, right? So you think of like, Keeping Up with the Kardashians or American Idol. And there's kind of this, they're very popularity-oriented, right? Like, who's going to survive and stay on the island? Who's going to be at the center of attention? And so it's not only that kids want this, it's actually that we as a culture promote and elevate fame as this big thing. So uh, think of Ryan Seacrest, right? He says, this is America where everyone has the right to life, love, and the pursuit of fame, right? So in a sense, we've replaced, uh, you know, life and the pursuit of happiness with love and the pursuit of fame. And so one of the researchers observing this, Yalda T. Uhls, she puts it this way. She says, we found that in 2007, fame was the number one value communicated to preteens on popular TV. So this is not only what youth want, this is what we as a culture are kind of promoting, she's saying. In every other year, fame ranked towards the bottom of a list of 16 values, running in, coming in at number 15 or 16. She goes on to say uh, that, interestingly, uh, community feeling, which they kind of used to, you know, belonging to a group and all. It used to be for years, it was kind of the number one right at the top, and how now that's moved way down towards the bottom. 
So there's a sense that we as a culture want the best seats in the house, right? Like we want to be seen, to be known, to be respected, to be heard. And so when they ask kids today, what, what, what profession, what do you want to be when you grow up? Over a third said either a sports a star, a pop actor, like a, what were the three? A sports star, a pop star, or an actor. Uh, whereas back in the day, and now today still, if they ask around the world, kind of internationally in developing countries, uh, the top ones are things like a doctor or a teacher. Since I want to serve the community. So fame is just one angle on power and privilege, but it's a prevalent one today. We often want to be at the center of attention, kind of over others, uh, seen and and heard. And the danger with this, the problem, is that we we can begin to see people as things to be used to kind of get ahead rather than people to be served and loved and known. We can begin to use others to try and get ahead. I was talking to a guy this week who he was, uh, last year, the, the Vatican, he's Protestant, the Vatican had kind of said, hey, we're going to entrust you to kind of organize a group of Protestant uh, pastors and all to come and, and meet and visit with the Pope. And he said the interesting thing happened when he came back home, he suddenly had all these emails and phone calls from people he'd never heard saying, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. I want to take you out to coffee. And one guy was just blunt. He said, uh, hey, I hear you're the guy I need to become friends with so I can go see the Pope, right? <laughs> and there's a sense of going, he's going like, man, I, I feel a bit used, you know, like you're saying you want to be my friend, but what you really want is just to kind of, you don't even know it, you just kind of want to hop on my shoulders to get where you want to go, to kind of create a platform, to be seen and all those things. You begin to feel used. And this is uh, an unfortunate reality today. There is kind of this sense of power by association. It's like what the disciples are saying, right? Like Jesus, he's their friend. He's their friend, but they kind of come. When the rubber hits the road, there's still kind of a sense of, Jesus, we want to use you to get our own name and lights to get ahead. Jesus, uh, when you are in office, let us be members of your cabinet, right? Like they're, they're using their friendship with him to try and leverage for their own privilege and gain. This is actually a marketing strategy, kind of a top marketing strategy today. Uh, In the age of social media, they say, man, if you've got a product or initiative or something coming out, you want to go out and try and start making friends online with people who, uh, you know, have fame or have following so that when it's time for your thing, they can help leverage and get your thing out. And the temptation here, once again, it becomes, the temptation is when people become a means to an end of glorifying ourselves rather than an end in themselves to serve and lift up and glorify, care for others. Okay, well, Jesus confronts this. He moves in a different direction. Jesus gives up his power to serve. So in verse 38, Jesus says, he goes on and responds. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And what he reveals here is that glory comes through suffering. If we're going to follow Jesus, we should read the fine print, right? 
Like there is a glory, but it comes through suffering. He tells them, you don't know what you're asking. They didn't read the fine print. They thought, hey, you know, following Jesus, it's going to be like going on a vacation to the Bahamas. And he's like, no, I'm actually going to take you with me down into the trenches. When Jesus talks about the cup and the baptism, he's referring to his death. Like the cup was this Old Testament image for uh, going into exile and uh, the wrath of God as people's uh, rebellion and injustice and violence and destruction had taken hold. It was kind of the season of God, you know, handing them over and his anger at what they had become. And Jesus goes, as I go to the cross, I'm taking all that upon myself. I'm actually going to bear the sin and the suffering and the shame and the weight of the world. This is what it means to move towards glory. is to serve and give your life for the world. Jesus kind of redefines leadership here. And the picture that Jesus gives is one that to lead is to serve. To lead is to serve. To be elected by God is to be elected to suffer for the sake of the community. We see this throughout Scripture, uh, that throughout the Bible, those who are chosen are chosen not to privilege, but are chosen to carry the weight of their people. That being chosen in Scripture is not uh, being chosen to kind of go off to the country club where you've got the gated fence and you're just kind of hanging out on the inside with the insiders. To be chosen is to go into the front lines. It's chosen to go into the trenches and to carry the weight of your people. There's a classic saying that can be a little cliche, but I think it's true that if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. We see Jesus bringing this reality that in the kingdom, leadership is by its very nature a service to carry the weight of your people. This is why we call uh, officials uh, public servants, right? I think this is actually an influence of Jesus and Christianity on the culture that we have come to look at uh, holding political office. And the ideal is that you would actually uh, serve the people that you lead. And this is probably why there's often a frustration uh, over the years that, man, it feels like often uh, it, officials have become more concerned about uh, just their own using the system for themselves rather than serving others. I think this is why there was so much public frustration during the housing crisis, like Wall Street bankers, where as they were giving themselves these kind of massive bonuses and the whole deal, uh, but it wasn't even just the, the money. So I think there was a sense of like, you had a position of leadership in our culture, in our economy, and you abused the system for your own gain and kind of walked away with the, the money bags while the, while the, you know, kind of everything crumbled and burned. There's this reality that authority is given by God for the sake of serving the community. And there's an injustice that happens when we use that power for our own advantage. I've been struck over the years with uh, kind of seeing our elders here at Imago, and it's been really inspiring because, you know, when I, when I first became a believer and coming to church, you know, elders, there's kind of this position, this title, this authority, uh, but often they're not very upfront, not very whatever, and seeing behind the scenes how what that means is, man, they're walking with couples whose marriages are in crisis, that they're mediating conflicts and situations uh, that, are, that are heavy, that they're kind of helping plan and tackle some of the tough financial decisions and logistical decisions going, how do we uh, embody the love of Christ and presence of Christ to one another in our city today? To lead is to serve. 
I'm struck by a, I was struck by this interview. They were interviewing a lieutenant general in the Marines uh, named George Flynn. And he was being asked, he's, he's being asked, you know, the Marines are kind of famous for this camaraderie, this solidarity. It's like, dude, you'll give your life for your brother and a heart. There's a sense of we are one. We'll lay down our lives for one another. And he was asking uh, Flynn, like, where does that come from? Where is that kind of solidarity, that team, that sacrificial we're for each other. Where does that come from? And Flynn responded, he's like, oh yeah, that's easy. Officers eat last. He's like, oh, what do you mean by that? You know, <laughs> well, and there's a sense that like, well, in the Marines, uh, there's a sense that like often the highest ranking generals with the stars and all will regularly kind of come out during mealtime to the chow line and they've got their stripes and whatever on, but they've also got on their apron and they're serving uh, the men as they come through the line and giving them their meal. And he said, if you compare it to, say, like the Navy or the Army, like when a, a Navy boat comes home, you know, lands on port, and it's kind of R&R time for some rest and relaxation and to get away and see your family. Uh, when the Navy ships land, it's kind of the highest-ranking officer gets off first, and then on down the line, and kind of privates and recruits are last. But he said, when a Marine uh, ship lands, it's the opposite. Like the privates and the recruits go first to see their families. And then the next layer, and then the next, until finally the highest-ranking officials go last. Officers eat last. And the observation was, when you have this ethic from the top of the sacrifice, where the leaders exist to serve the people that they lead to protect and care for them, there is a community bond that forms. There is a uh, brotherhood, a sisterhood, a, a sense of family that begins to emerge, that exists. We exist not to try and use each other to get ahead. We exist for one another. Simon Sinek is an author, and he, in his book, Leaders Eat Last, he kind of observes this. He says, uh, what's symbolic in the chow hall is deadly serious on the battlefield. Great leaders sacrifice their own comfort, even their own survival, for the good of those in their care. And Jesus is like that, like that top officer, that captain of the ship that takes on the lowest position at the cross to form a community, to form a people through his sacrificial love. I think there are other examples, uh, loads of examples of this. Uh, I think of, I was hearing this year about a business in China that some friends of mine are connected to. And so there's this factory, and it's in a rural area, and it's owned and kind of ran by two Christian business people. And they were kind of going, man, how do we look through all the different aspects of this factory and just go, how might the kingdom, how might we not use this to serve ourselves and our company, or how might we use this to serve the people? And so they said one of the initial challenges that we saw was that in this uh, area, well, often what will happen is if workers get kind of educated or trained, they become more skilled and they'll move on and you lose them. So it's in the company's best interest to kind of keep workers untrained and uneducated, right? And they go, we want to flip that on its head and rather than see that as threatening, we want to go, dude, our company exists for these workers and so we're going to offer literacy classes and computer classes. We're going to make it part of the employee's time and our goal is actually that within a year or two, this would be a stepping stone for them to move into a better they also said it's common for uh, paychecks, like you'll get, you could get your paycheck like six months after the work is done, right? Because you have no control over those who kind of have authority. And so they'll wait until the product gets made and shipped and then they get the money back and then finally it whittles down to the, the, the employee. 
So we want to reverse that and go, you're getting your paycheck within a week or two. And if we miss, if we're late, like that's your money we're holding for six months. If you're late, we're paying you interest, right? So they put this into their bylaws. They, they're, they're paying interest to their employees uh, if they're doing kind of the common practice. They had all these other examples, but there was this picture of going, uh, how do we not use this to serve us? How do we use this to serve the people? And one of the things that's crazy, they said, was just the camaraderie and the solidarity that formed. And even in the community, how local officials and people just really, uh, it became a celebrated part of the life in that neighborhood. And it's back here at home, too, you know, I have some friends here at, at Imago who, uh, in their business, said, hey, we actually want to try and carve out time where we encourage our employees to actually use their skill sets for initiatives, for nonprofits, for things that would be serving the greater good of our community. We're, we're actually going to let them use a portion of their employee time for that. And we're actually going to create a fund that's going to try and help serve and launch initiatives that would be for the good of our community. These are pictures that to serve is to lead. To lead is to serve, right? Like to lead is to serve. And I know for some of us, if you're like me, you might be going, well, I'm not a general, I'm a private, right? Like I, I, I'm an employee, not a CEO. We might not, you might feel like, well, I don't really have authority like that. Um, but the reality is that you and I do, right? We all have some measure of kind of influence uh, with our family, with friends, with people in our lives, in our neighborhood, and the reality is how we use that authority, how we use that influence, actually shapes and forms our character. I believe one of the things that Jesus wants to do is to shape and form our character through service as people who are made fit to rule with him in his kingdom. That, that glory comes through suffering. It comes through sacrifice. It comes through suffering the community, of carrying the weight of your people, of giving yourself for the good of those that God has entrusted to your care. All right, well, we've seen that we kind of crave and seek after power and that Jesus kind of models a different way. He goes a different direction and says the end game is to, to serve, to lead us to serve. And now we want to look at how we can serve because Jesus has set us free. Right? Like we can serve because Jesus sets us free. So as we move to the, the finale here of the passage, uh, we read that when the ten heard this, when they heard James and John kind of wanting the best seats in the house, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, I find it interesting how right out of the gate, the ten are indignant, right? There's this sense, they look at James and John, there's this like, man, why are you guys trying to cut in line? Why are you trying to work your way over us and get to the top? And so we see once again that you know, striving after power breaks down community. But Jesus leads in a different direction. He gathers them together and he says, actually, this is how I live. This is what I'm about to do. And for those of you who are going to follow in my footsteps, this is how you are to live as well. That you're not to seek to be served, but to serve, to lay your life down for others. I believe Jesus 
gives us here two different versions. There are two different versions of glory in our world. Uh, what I like to call kind of the, the Caesar version versus the Jesus version, right? Uh, the Caesar version of glory, it's kind of what Jesus says here, that the rulers of the Gentiles, like Caesar and the, the, the leaders of the day, uh, they love to rule, to kind of lord it over those they have authority over. But Jesus says it's not to be so among you. Uh, Plato, interesting, puts it this way. Kind of the ancient world, he said, uh, ruling and not serving is proper to a man. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Sort of, he's sort of embodying that, that Caesar ethic, right? Like the goal of happiness is when you have others serving you. The goal of kind of is to get yourself in a position where you have the security and resources for others to be at your disposal. And it kind of confuses and confounds them. How can someone be happy if their life is oriented towards serving others? And so there's kind of this picture of glory as being at the top and everyone telling you how great you are. But Jesus says, man, there's this other version of glory that moves in the other direction. And I think this, this taps into our heart. There's a sense where we see acts of sacrificial love and we're looking and we go, oh, that is glorious. So I think we see this, for example, in film all the time. I was watching recently uh, with my kids this uh, movie Home, right? And it's a cartoon and there's this weird little purple alien guy and he comes to planet Earth and he makes friends with uh, this kid and, and all. And there's this moment at the climax of the movie where this uh, spaceship is coming down and it's going to destroy the Earth. And this character, oh, this little alien, he kind of goes and he runs and he places himself, he jumps under the ship, he places himself in harm's way. And there's this moment where you think, He's dead, right? Like he gave his life for the sake of the community. And I got a tear starting to come out of my eye, and I'm trying to like wipe it away and avoid my kids seeing it, you know. <laughs> and my kids are crying, you know. And, and there's a sense it's like, dude, it's this weird little purple alien. But <laughs> you can't help but be moved by this picture of someone giving their life for others. And you kind of look at it and go, man, O is glorious, right? This alien right, he is glorious. There's this different version of glory here, a sacrificial giving of yourself for others. We see that all the time. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's like the, one of the classic themes in epic movies. And so it's Braveheart, you know, back in the day where William Wallace is giving his life for the people. It's Saving Private Ryan where they're risking their lives going behind enemy lines to pull the one out. It's Titanic, right? Titanic. But where, you know, at the end, Leo is kind of lifting up Kate and giving himself so that she can live. And some of these can seem even maybe kind of cheesy at times or whatever, but you can't help. You look around the theater and everyone's sobbing, right? It taps into the human heart. There's a sense that this is glorious. It's this different version of glory. One is saying, hey, glory's about everyone tell me how great I am. The other, the Jesus version of glory, is giving my life for others. It's giving oneself for others. Because Jesus also he reveals the Trinity. And what we find in the Trinity is that this self-giving is at the very heart of the nature of God. That from eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are an eternal communion of love. They love sharing glory with one another. They give glory to one another. They give themselves to one another, and they receive their identity from one another. And so within this, we see that glory is not kind of God's glory. He's glorious, but his glory is not kind of this egotistical, everyone tell me how great I am, right? 
glory is the emanation. It's, it's the beauty of God, who he is. It's the expression of his goodness. It's the radiance of his goodness. It's the perfection of his character revealed and displayed. The goodness of God. It's God's glory is his goodness made manifest. And the triune God does not suffer in eternity. There's this perfection of light and life and love. But when encountered with our fallen world, our fractured, fragmented, broken world, the response of God's glorious character is to step in and to bear it himself in Christ at the cross. To take our suffering and our sin and our shame and our alienation, our forsakenness, to take it all upon himself and bear it in order to reconcile and make us whole. God's glory is his sacrif- revealed in sacrificial love. And this is kind of the, this is the epiphany, right? Like as we're staring at Jesus and we're listening to Jesus, this is the moment where the image should kind of come out of the 3D painting and the whole picture kind of pop and make sense. It's like this is what God's glory is. This is what God's power is. Yes, God has power. And this is how God exercises his power. God, this is the God of the Exodus, right? Who identifies with the last and the least and the enslaved and the weakest and the lost in order to deliver and pull them out. This is who God is. The epiphany of a God who uses his power to serve and lift up others. All right, well, Jesus, I'm struck when he uses this ransom imagery, at the end he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, that ransom imagery, uh, the context is, it, it's imagery from, uh, the backdrop is slavery and enslavement. And so what would happen is if you had someone who was captive, was in bondage, was enslaved, uh, the ransom was someone would come and they would pay the ransom. It was the price that was paid to enter in with and pull someone out of their captivity. And we see this in the Bible, like the, the heart of the Exodus here. Jesus is saying, I am the ransom and the ransom I'm going to give is my very life. Right, who gave his life as a ransom for many. And so as Jesus gives his life, the price that he is willing to pay, the goal is to set us free. It's to set us free. And, and, and we see like, man, in the Exodus, it's both. Yes, it's physical. It's actual captivity and enslavement, right? And we also see that it's kind of expanded in the New Testament. It's also spiritual captivity, this captivity to a world infatuated with power, this captivity to a world uh, striving after fame, Jesus wants to set us free to a life that serves and lifts up others. It's willing to lay down our lives for our friends. <clears throat> We're set free to set others free. When I think about this, I, I think of the Underground Railroad. Uh, if you're familiar with the Underground Railroad, uh, in, a, in American history, it was this network of kind of homes, churches, caves, things that uh, basically when people were, it was used for people to escape slavery. And so if you were escaping captivity, uh, what would happen is, you know, they used the language of the railroad. Uh, it wasn't actually a literal railroad, right? But it was like code terminology 
for describing this network of this path towards freedom. And so the conductors were those guiding kind of a a journey of slaves to to get out. And these conductors were often ex-slaves themselves who risked their freedom to go back and to find others and bring them out. These train stations were hiding places along the way, uh, you know, homes or churches or caves, places that people uh, would establish as kind of safe places to make the journey. So they go about 10 to 20 miles a night and then rest during the day. The agents were, uh, you know, like agents giving people tickets, right? Like people who would scope out and find people who wanted to be set free and help get them connected to the network. There were stockholders, those who would financially invest in uh, helping make this network happen. And the passengers were those themselves being delivered. And so there's this picture of this network of all these people rallying together to create this network of a path towards freedom. And one of the most significant players in this network were those who had escaped themselves. And can you imagine uh, being someone who had uh, come out of an escaped captivity and who had found and kind of tasted freedom, and yet then you were going to put it at risk, going to put it on the line to go back and to identify and be with others and help bring them out too. Well, I believe uh, that's part of what Jesus is calling us to, that if we have kind of tasted this liberation from a world striving after power and fame, that we are called to go and serve and identify with others and help bring them out too. Uh, Harriet Tubman is one of the most famous people uh, from the Underground Railroad. She was known as Moses uh, and the Conductor. Uh, She made 19 trips in 10 years, freeing a massive number of slaves, including her 70-year-old parents. There was a $40,000 reward out for her return. You can imagine how much money that was back in the day. As she used her freedom to draw out others. I believe Christ calls us to the same, to use our freedom to draw out others, to put ourselves on the line. We can often be asking, God, what's, this, what's the great thing you want to do with my life? Now that I'm following you, what's this great thing you want to do with my life? And I think God's often going, man, be willing to put yourself on the line, give yourself to others in order to help Others become free. So two questions this kind of poses for us this morning. Uh, The first question is to ask, where do you need to be set free? Where do you need to be set free? Because I believe Jesus is our Harriet Tubman, right? He has uh, taken his freedom and and, and he's used it to kind of enter into our condition and be with us in order to set us free. And I love one of uh, Harriet Tubman's most famous quotes. She says this, she says, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. There's this picture going, one of the first things we have to acknowledge or recognize is own that we have a problem, own that, that we're in captivity. One of the first steps to move towards freedom is to own before Christ that, man, there, there's a captivity that we have that we need help with. You know, tomorrow night, uh, Refuge starts. And Refuge is an amazing community. There's over 100 folks who are journeying together with uh, maybe addiction or dealing with histories of abuse, of struggle, of grief, of losing a loved one. And usually the starting point is acknowledging and knowing, man, I've got 
something that's holding me captive and I need help. I need others. I need access to a network of others who are going to help me move towards freedom. Tomorrow night is kind of their opening night for the new season. And uh, that may be, for some of you here today, you know, we can often get uh, so focused on wanting to set others free, but not recognize, man, I'm, I'm captive. There's some stuff I need liberation from myself. So I want to invite you tomorrow night, if that's you, that could be a great opportunity to come and find others. But for all of us, Jesus has freed tons of folks, kind of like Harriet said of herself, right? Jesus has freed loads of people, and the promise is that he can with you too. But the first step is to acknowledge and own those places of captivity in our lives. That as we see Jesus going by, we wouldn't just be content to see him going free others. We would cry out for his salvation, his liberation ourselves. So the first question, where do you need to be set free? And the second question is who do you need to serve? Right? Who is that you need to serve? Because it's, it's not just for them. It's not just for the people that you're going to serve. It's actually for yourself. Right? It can sound selfish, but it, there's this piece of going, dude, actually serving is how Christ is going to form you, is going to form I in his image. This has to do with our shaping of our own character, that as we lay down our lives for others, God is actually shaping and filling and forming us as his people. And so as we think about that, who is it that you need to serve? Um, I think it can be kind of easy to jump to the usuals. You know, there's a lot uh, going on. You guys are leading amazing areas and ministries like with foster care and refugees and anti-trafficking and homelessness and things like that. And those are great. And for some of you today, maybe God's saying, hey, I'm tugging at your heart. I'm calling you to jump into one of those. But as I, as I was praying about this this weekend, I feel like there's another area that God kind of wants to drill on more deeply for most of us as a community. And that area is what uh, we call the ministry of the ear. Ministry of the ear. What I mean by that, it comes from my, it was a quote from Pope Francis where I heard him talking and he was kind of being asked like, hey, in our day and age, what do you think is one of the greatest kind of ministries or things that's needed in our time? And he said, you know, we're familiar with lots of the major things, but he's like, uh, the reality is today, though, an often neglected area is that in our Western, industrial, kind of technologized society, one of the chief needs is loneliness and isolation. And he's like, what we need today is the, the ministry of the ear. Because we often emphasize the ministry of the voice, kind of talking, or the ministry of the hands, like doing But the ministry of the ear seeks to go and to ask questions, to listen, to hear someone's story, to get to know them, to actually in encountering them and shining the light on them and lifting them up, to actually, um, man, that's that's a mode of service. To seek others out, they would be known. To help them move out of isolation and loneliness. And so the reality for us today is is I think, man, of areas, for example, like it could be right at home, in our marriages, right? If, you, if you're married here today, what does that look like with your spouse to practice the ministry of the ear? So we get focused on a lot of keeping the kids fed and in school and all that. You know, what does it actually look like to move, though, towards each other and to ask questions and to seek to help folks move out of the loneliness and isolation that can even exist in a marriage and to listen and hear and know the other, to be not just a comrade, a partner, but a friend. 
Marriage, I've found, is, is often one of the, the significant kind of workshops of holiness where God wants to form us, this kind of most intimate context where you learn to lay down your life for the other. And God wants to shape and form us as his people. And for many of us, being uh, single, that's not the case. In, but you, there are these intimate friendships. There are these places where, again, we have a culture that often wants to emphasize uh, trying to use people to get ahead and get in the spotlight. How can we serve our friends and in the intimate bonds of friendship, lay down our lives for our friends and for others, to seek them out and practice the ministry of the ear? Not just what can I get from you, but what can I give to you? Think of the youth in our community. Uh, there have been studies done on when kids grow up in church, what, what's the number one thing that is signpost that they're going to actually uh, retain the faith when they move on, like out of high school, out of the home? And there were like three big ones, but one of the biggest, one of those three biggest ones was whether someone older in the church that was not a family, not a relative or whatever, actually invested in them, got to know them, asked questions of them. They were seen and known and heard as a person. And so, as we kind of go, like, who might God be calling you to serve? I ask, is there someone that God might be tapping you on the shoulder to, to call up this week, to invite over? And not for any agenda other than to ask questions, to get to know their story, to hear where they're at. We could serve by helping each other be known and walking together as a people. So where do you need to be set free, and who is God calling you to serve? Reality is, as we do this, as we, we come to the table this morning, we come to Christ, our ransom, who laid down his life for us as his friends, who gave himself and took all that we have to bring, took it upon himself, and carried it to the cross to bury it there in order to reconcile us as his people. We come to Christ, the servant of all, who helps again to kind of that 3D picture shift and come into focus and go, man, power, all of us have some level of it. It's not a bad thing. It's good. God has power. God's given us power. But its purpose is that we would use it in Christ to, to serve others, to lay down our lives for others. And as we come to the table this morning, we come to the king who is led by doing that very thing for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, you who are our ransom, you who have entered fully in our con condition, God, and take it upon yourself in order to set us free and bring us into life with you. God, we pray this morning as we come to the table that we would be captivated by this different vision of glory, the way that the kingdom of God confronts the empires of the world with not the desire to climb to the top of the heap, the desire to lay our lives down, Jesus, in you. And so, Jesus, I, I pray now that your spirit, Holy Spirit, would surface in us today. If there are any areas where we need to be set free, God, things that we have been ignoring or avoiding or kind of hiding from, the Spirit of God, would you right now just kind of lift and bring to the surface, bring up to our mind's eye, bring to our recognition those areas where we need freedom. And guide us, Leah, show us how to access kind of the networks that you put in place to, to move towards freedom together. God. And Father, if there are any uh, here, God, just that you, you want to be tapping on the shoulder, would you guide us and go, and where are you calling us to serve? It could be in ministries, it could just be in our neighborhoods, it could be in 
whatever, organizations in town, whatever. But God, I want to pray specifically right now. The Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind if there's that person that we need to call this week, God, if we need to practice the ministry of the ear with, to seek out and listen that they might be known and brought out of isolation and into the gaze of people who care for them. Jesus, we pray all this because of your glorious name, you who have modeled this different vision of glory that you have given of yourself, God, in order to lift us up. And so we come to you this morning in reverent love. In the name of Christ, we pray. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.